0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael, I know it's Jobs Day. I believe we have a few guests qualified to talk about the unemployment rate, labor participation, maybe even someone qualified to talk about wage growth.
2: Well, that would be Alan Krueger from Princeton University, who is the former chief economist at the Labor Department and the Treasury Department and chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Guy just can't hold a job. I don't know what his problem is, but Alan is with us, as always, on Jobs Day. Let me just mention, Tom, before uh, we get started with with Alan, that the consensus forecasts are for 172,000 jobs to have been created in the month of September. And interestingly enough, that is bang on the six-month average, 173. So uh, a number today that meets consensus would probably uh, not lead to a whole lot of additional trading. 4.9% is the forecast for unemployment. But, uh, Alan, as Tom touched on, the one change uh, that you do see in the forecast is a significant increase in average hourly earnings. Uh, The question is, is this going to be a statistical fluke, or are we really seeing wages rise because we're running out of workers, the old Phillips curve? Uh,
3: I think we are seeing the Phillips curve. I think it's a gradually sloped Phillips curve. Uh, But over the past year, we have seen wages pick up, both nominal and after adjusting for inflation, um, which is encouraging. It shows that we're continuing to dig our way out of the deep problems from the recession. Uh,
2: The deep problems of the recession um, left us sort of flat and left us with this populist anger. Do we see wages rising fast enough that it
3: will affect people's view of the world? That's a very good question, Mike. And you look at the data that came out on 2015. We had the fastest growth in real median household income since the Census Bureau started collecting the data. Uh, So I think it's clear that households are doing better, but they went through such a traumatic experience uh, that I think it's going to take a while before people are feeling good about their economic situation.
1: Alan, when I look at the unemployment rate, people drive low. Is it a constructive lower unemployment rate, or is it a bad thing if the unemployment rate drops?
3: Well, I think it's a good thing on uh, on net. I think Uh, A tighter labor market will help to support wages. We saw inequality decline in 2015, mainly because of more job growth uh, that year and and higher wage growth, particularly for lower-income families. Um, I think this recovery is not going to be the strongest one we've had, but it could well be the longest. Okay.
2: Alan Krueger is with us, uh, Princeton University economics professor, former chief economist at various government agencies, including the Labor Department. So here's a man who knows uh, the labor economy. One of the issues in the presidential race has been the declining rate of labor force participation and why uh, people are not in the labor force. You've just done some new work on it, um, and uh, oddly titled it "Where Have All the Workers Gone?"
3: Uh, what have you found? First of all, labor force participation has been declining since 2000. So uh, I find it somewhat curious that a lot of the people who are complaining about it now didn't start complaining about it uh, until uh, after President Obama was elected. Uh, The main driver over the last decade of the decline in labor force participation has been the baby boom reaching retirement age. And the increase in retirements just about equals the decline in the participation rate. That said, there are some other trends that have been taking place for a long period of time. Prime age men have been reducing their labor force participation for the last 50 years. And one of the things I found is that if you look at the 12% of men, 25 to 54, who are not working, about half of them have a serious health condition. And I think if we are to uh, look for ways to increase the participation rate, we really need to deal with the health issues that are a barrier to work for many, many workers.
1: I look, Alan Kruger, on a jobs day that I guess is a dead jobs day because I'm told the November meeting is a dead meeting. Of the FOMC is a media animal. I refuse to, to succumb to that. Does a grizzled pro like you look at this as a dead report?
3: <laughs> you know, I think people tend to... Uh, amplify uh, the reports in other months, and in this month, they're probably underplaying it. You know, the jobs report gives us the best picture of how the economy is doing in the short run. Uh, And at the same time, it's a volatile statistic, like all of the statistics we get.
1: What does it say about small business percolating is a yeah, but, which is everything's great. Yeah, but small business isn't there. What do you see there?
3: After a financial crisis, I think it's typically the case that small business struggles. That is who is dependent on bank financing. They have difficulty getting credit. Their uh, homes are often underwater, which is a source of credit. So, the longer that this recovery goes on, the likelier I think it is that small businesses will start to uh, be able to get credit, that their credit records will improve. Uh, and that will be one reason why I think we can see this recovery uh, go on for some time if we don't make policy mistakes.
2: How, uh, how would you define a policy mistake um, when you have interest rates as low as they are and when you have the Fed promising to be as slow and cautious as they have? Um, the, traditionally, we think of a policy make mistake as the Fed
3: raising interest rates too quickly. Well, that has been a cause of most of our recessions. Um, on the other hand, you also have to worry about bubbles building up, which is a, a risk to the recovery. Uh, and you have to worry about the potential... Uh, election of a candidate who says he'll slap a 45 percent tariff on on china potentially renege on the full faith and credit of the u.s dollar uh deport millions of uh immigrants uh all of those things i think would devastate the economy
1: I, i look alan it it the terrific set of guests that we've got lined up and there's an international feel to this report. I mean, fold in here the better American economy. How much better is it than some of the other challenges around the world? The answer is it gets wider and wider, doesn't it?
3: Well, we certainly have a lot of problems, but I wouldn't trade our problems for any other country's problems. Uh, I was just in uh, Korea. I actually flew back late last night. And uh, they have a demographic tsunami that's about to hit them. They're going to go from the fourth youngest country in the OECD to the oldest in the matter of 25 years. As you look at the problems in Japan, uh, which has never recovered from the recession in the early 90s, uh, China has enormous challenges ahead of it, uh, Europe, uh, the U.K., you just go on and on. And our problems are solvable if we have the political will to address them.
2: Well, that will be uh, the question come January when we have a new Congress and a new president. We shall see. Alan Kruger, thanks for Michael, joining us. how Dobbs can Day. Alan
1: Kruger sit in my chair in New York without a bow tie on?
2: Uh, <laughs> he, actually, he actually was
3: not wearing a tie this morning. And he, we he was, also
2: moved him. We yeah. said he couldn't
3: sit there couldn't even sit if you were so, I it, knew I shouldn't yeah. have tweeted that picture, Tom.
2: <laughs> Alan Kruger and Tom Keene.
1: This is a real pleasure and honor, folks. Peter Fisher is uh, someone who has served the nation uh, at Treasury. He has served the nation in academics, and he actually served the nation doing finance at a small shop called Blackstone. Uh, he is uh, right now, I would say, associated more with Tuck and Dartmouth uh, than the other eight places he works. Uh, <laughs> P- hey. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I guess I could start out by saying, have you ever seen anything like this? But let me get to the what Jack Lew is looking at this morning, the Secretary of the Treasury. I just did a fancy pants log extrapolation of sterling to 1.20. And somewhere in the vicinity of the middle of November, we're going to enjoy a good old G7 currency depreciation. Can the United Kingdom work in a vacuum or are there, are there present in near future knock on effects of weaker sterling.
4: Um well that they're they're bound to be. Uh I think we can see that Brexit is hard to price other than in the exchange rate. That we think it slows the UK economy down, we think it makes the Bank of England uh, tend toward uh, the easier side of uh, whatever they can pull off. And that's everything else is so uncertain about Brexit, we see this sort <coughs> of anomaly driving sterling lower and lower. Um, uh, clearly, they're going to be knock-on effects. Given the size of the U.K. economy, it still yeah. matters to us all, and, and it may pick up the terms of trade. This may be what's annoying European leaders, even if they're not saying it, uh, that sterling's benefiting from the depreciation they hoped the euro would get uh, over the exactly. last few years. Um, so it's bound to have those consequences. a little hard to see how it all shakes out, but right. yeah and
1: Jakob that's, that's, fells moments ago, folks on surveillance talking about euro stability or even strength uh, flows. Peter Fisher, uh, this redounds back onto a United States, and clearly day two here folks of the IMF meetings, the idea is the u s ever more is stronger and better and in good shape compared to so many other nations and regional systems. Do you agree, Peter?
4: Yes. I mean, it, it's we, we wish we'd had more of an acceleration in this recovery. We wish we were doing better in some terms, but we're doing pretty well, especially compared with the rest of the world. Just looking at um, you know the level of our unemployment, the uh, level of GDP growth, it's disappointing, but it's better than the neighborhood. Absolutely,
1: Peter. When we look at uh, jobs day coming up, and I guess we'll focus on that within the hour. And this is something you're quite good at. There's a, a macroeconomic system of one view of a nation. John Edwards, among others, started talking about two Americas. Do you, as I'm going to call you a non-macro expert, but yet with great micro realities, do you look at America as a two-system job economy, or can you really blend it all in as we did for decades and decades?
4: No, I, I, I think we we know um, our labor market is fractured, or we have a decline in the participation rate. We've got the discouraged uh, may, uh, middle age uh, and and working age, I should say, uh, men who aren't participating in the labor force. Um, that we should all scratch our heads about that and think that that's that's a big challenge for us. Um, I think it's such a disappointment that this campaign has not focused on what we should be doing uh, to uh, really invigorate our our labor market, uh, the structural reforms we should be undertaking. Uh, We've been uh, too much focused on the negative, if you will, of... uh,
1: Well, Secretary Clinton coined years ago, years ago, folks, Senator Clinton coined an idea of fair trade. What is fair trade to Peter Fisher?
4: (laughs) Um, Well, I... I think fair trade says we think we should get our fair access to other markets and only give people fair access to our markets. I think that's putting the shoe on the wrong foot, if you will. I think we should be doing more for people who are displaced by free trade. I think we should be doing much, much more uh, to retrain uh, those who lose their jobs, to provide adjustment assistance to those counties uh, where we see the job loss from the benefits of trade. We know the benefits – to trade flow to all of us but are hard to measure and the costs of free trade are easy to identify people who've lost Mm -hmm. their jobs feel it We should do much more for that. I don't think we should hold back on trade because someone else isn't being fair to us. I think we should be fair to our own people. We should be fair to our workers and do much, much more on the trade adjustment assistance side.
1: Peter Fisher with us. Time for surveillance correction. I'm good at those. There'll be many today. (laughs) I believe I identified Mr. Fisher with Blackstone and I should have migrated over to BlackRock as uh, okay. uh, a, Thank you, a place of former employment. Let's go to what you used to do at BlackRock. You'd wander in the door, your leisurely day, starting at 9 a.m., and you'd wander over to the liquidity desk and say, are we liquid? You rarely said, are we solvent? Peter Fisher, I've been linking the word trust into liquidity, and there's some real questions about that within the banking system. How liquid are the European banks right now?
4: Uh. Well, I, 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 um, I'm i not close to the European banks or to the trading markets as, as I used to be when I did it full-time. Um, I, th- I think they are liquid. I think they're running out of income. The constraint, I think, is coming yeah. on the other side. Um, so I don't think people are worried about you know, that they can't pay their bills when they're due. Uh, But what they're worried about is the margin compression um, and and earnings power. And I think you see the rumblings out of the ECB about uh, the system being overbanked. Well, that's been true in Europe for 30 years. They're overbanked. They've got too many banks. They should have, once they invented the euro, they should have worked much harder on a rationalization consolidation of the banking system. So this is overdue, and that would be one way Uh, to try to deal with uh, the earnings compression of the European banking system. I think that's where the constraint is.
1: And this has been a theme, folks, of the meetings. Pierre Moscovici was just wonderful yesterday on this profitability conundrum. Let me bring in Michael McKee in New York with Peter Fisher. Michael?
2: Peter, I guess a lot of the question that revolves around all this is uh, confidence. Do we have confidence in the European banking system? But here... As we see people come in and out of the labor force, as we see wages start to rise, uh, do we have enough confidence to weather any kind of Fed rate move, small Fed rate move? Will people keep borrowing? Will people keep spending if the Fed does something? That that would seem to be the key question that uh, surrounds all this.
4: I I don't think uh, the Fed funds rate 25 basis points higher is really going to constrain anyone. Um, that's not what I think is, is – uh, I think the Fed is likely to confront uh, pickup in inflation. I'm not very fussed about inflation, but most of the measures of inflation have already accelerated to 2 percent and higher. The Fed's preferred PCE measure is is lagging. I think there's going to be a catch-up here, and I think that's going to give a little pressure to the long end of the yield curve. Um, I think today's employment report, if it's on the stronger side – will add to that pressure that, well, yeah, the Fed's going to have to do something. But it's not about the next 25 basis points. It's about whether the Fed will do one next year or three or four moves next year. Uh, that's what is going to hang in the balance over the next few months of economic data.
2: Peter Fisher is with us uh, right now, lecturer at uh, the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, formerly uh, the man who ran the open market operations for the Federal Reserve, worked at uh, the Treasury Department as Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, and then uh, had a career at BlackRock uh, in the markets. And I want to go to the markets and their relationship uh, to the Fed. There's been, Peter, a big question raised recently about whether or not – the Fed is uh, and its policies are distorting anything in the markets. Uh, how do you see it? If you were going to be producing for the next Fed meeting the, uh, the market report uh, that goes uh, into the meeting, what would you be telling them?
4: Uh, well, um, they might be shocked to hear what I'll tell them. Um, uh, we know the yield curve has been dragged down by uh, the QE policies in Japan and Europe. That is our long end. You can see it. It was coming down when the Fed really wasn't doing anything over the last year as the 2 to 10 spread tightened. That was more of a tightening than the Fed expected. Uh, that's one uh, anomaly. Uh, but I think what I'd be telling the committee they might not want to hear is they've been targeting a low level of volatility as if it is a third policy goal. Um, and so they've been that sque- they are uncomfortable when asset prices jump around too much uh, it, it's it's like a third in addition to inflation and employment, um, they get squeamish about volatility. Um, I think that's a big mistake. I think it's a natural consequence of monetary policy doing its thing, um, but you can see this very low level of vol that that we've had um, that I think is is creating the distortions that 's the most important one.
1: To improve, uh, Mr. Fisher, a negative rate strategy, do we need to disperse the effect of negative rates to a broader public nation to nation? Do we need to stop using negative rates and migrate back to the zero bound? What's the Peter Fisher calculus there?
4: Well, I think negative rates were a mistake. Uh, I think it, um, I think the Bank of Japan has not quite admitted it, but they're working their way out of them so that they've come up with an exit strategy from negative rates, and that's to manage their yield curve. Um, negative rates, there are lots of fallacies that go into thinking that negative rates would work. Uh, one is that the human reaction function is linear. That if we lower rates from 4 to 3 percent, that'll encourage consumption. So if we lower them from zero to minus one, that'll encourage consumption. No, it looks like it encourages savings. Uh, We can see why negative rates might help you weaken your currency if you're trying to steal demand from your trading partners. Um, But it doesn't look like it's going to encourage consumption. in part because banks aren't willing to pass it on. Uh, And so banks really face, in Japan and Europe, an inverted yield curve already. They they have trouble passing on the negative rates, so it's zero at the short end, and then it's negative at the long end. That's terrible for the credit channel. So pretty much the Bank of Japan and the ECB have acknowledged that it didn't help the credit channel. Um, So it really doesn't – it hasn't helped. So this is, uh, I think – the most embarrassing thing for the central bankers is for the last eight years, they've said they had to experiment. The economy was in difficult circumstances, and it was up to them to be bold and experiment. But they never can admit when their experiments don't work. The experimental method requires that people acknowledge uh, what the results were, and they've had a hard time doing that.
2: Well, uh, I,
1: can't, I can't say enough, Michael, the importance of this non-linearity. This is a huge deal.
2: We uh, – We do see evidence of what you're talking about, Peter, here in the headlines just crossing now. Mario Draghi in Washington for the IMF meetings, giving a speech behind closed doors, but the text released. Uh, Draghi uh, saying that they will let QE continue to run, and he sees rates at current or lower levels for an extended period, repeats that they will use all instruments within their mandate if needed. Uh, and he, at the same time, says that low rates are hurting banks, relying on maturity transformation. Um, so, yes, we're causing harm, but no, we're not going to stop.
4: Yeah, Well, he, I mean, at, at least in Japan, the Bank of Japan, by by committing to try to manage their yield curve, they're going to try to have a graceful exit. I think it's a very wise thing to do. If you've made the mistake of negative rates, now you're trying to undo the damage. They want to control how fast the curve steepens. Uh, and that's one way of passing the football over to the Abe government and fiscal policy. But Draghi doesn't have that option. He doesn't have anyone to pass the football to um, uh, on the fiscal side. And so he, he's left, um, you know, spinning his wheels. I'm afraid it's, it's very awkward for him.
1: Uh, Peter Fisher, let's leave it there. Thank you so much. Very generous of you to be with us today, with Tuck at Dartmouth College, uh, and of course with his service to the Treasury, uh, the Treasury Department, a number of years ago. Who you put your trust in
0: matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of four trillion dollars. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.
2: The question now is how the Treasury market trades all of this. We'd like to welcome to Bloomberg Radio and Television Bill Gross. Of Janus Capital. And Bill, you've seen the numbers. Uh, one commentator already out with the, the phrase meh, but uh, does it matter? Uh, the question <laughs> I, I, I put to uh, Peter Fisher a minute ago does it matter to anybody except uh, short term Treasury traders at this point?
5: Yeah, I don't think so. I don't know how you spell meh or uh, uh, but in any case, uh, you know, pretty milk toast. you can you can spell that. Um, and, and, and pretty on the number in, in terms of what we are expecting. Uh, the work week was uh, flat, I guess, and as you mentioned, wages up 0.2%, so there's nothing much there to keep the Fed from raising interest rates, and whether it's November or December, I'm not sure, but I think at, at some point they have to. I mean, the central banks tend to be a Little weak need at the moment, uh, including the Fed. They've talked tough and stressed data dependence, and here we are. But you know, the, there've only been three hawks willing to back up their words with a dissension at uh, last month's vote. And so I, I think that here's the important thing. I think Mike. I think the growing outcry from financial institutions about negative interest rates are starting to have some effect. Boston's uh, Rosengren. Uh, As the most recent example, he's sort of done a 180. And in addition, the BOG and the ECB may be running out of bonds to buy. So um, their policies might shift to a a little less dovish and a little more price bullish.
1: Uh, Bill Gross, good morning from Washington and the meetings of the International Monetary Fund. You're terribly missed here. Everybody wants to know what you're going to do with the marginal (laughs) Janus. Uh, move. What I would note, Bill, and I've never seen this the conflation of non farm payrolls moving averages, the three month off the Bloomberg, 192,000, the one year non farm payrolls average, 204,000, and Bill, for the first time I took a presidential moving average of non farm payrolls, what a success, 212,000. I've never seen the conflation in of the trend in job formation why are we so miserable if we're generating a good number of jobs every month
5: well that, that's the the old question I, I i think they they are coming down i've got my moving averages too just like you and they're they're right on the money in terms of what you just mentioned so um you know they're gradually coming down that's what happens to, during a recovery I, I think the unhappiness comes from uh, from wages, I think the unhappiness comes from the real nature of wages over a five, ten, fifteen year period of time, and I think ultimately that uh, labor uh, you know is beginning to to feel uh some oats, not necessarily some uh, you know a big uh, porridge bowl full, but uh, you know they're they're starting to uh, feel that it's their turn and and so um, yeah, it's it's been this long-term trend of, of capital versus labor and stock market versus wages. And I, I think uh, maybe not over the next election, but certainly over the next few years, we're going to see some type of shift in fiscal policy that advantages labor as opposed to to business and capital.
2: I don't want to make too much of this, of course, because it's it's one-day trading. But when you look at the market reaction, not just to this number, but over the last couple of days, we do seem to be seeing people sell treasuries around the world. The bond market in the U.S. 10-year note yield 1.76, and uh, the two-year at 85 basis points, they've moved up since this May job report, as we said, and Germany now three basis points, they've moved back into positive for their tenure. The Japanese 10 year yield is higher. Is there starting to be a change in bond market psychology about the inflation and other risk uh, risk going forward?
5: Well, I don't think inflation, Mike, uh, perhaps. You know, we're we're seeing inflation tick up a little bit uh, in in the PCE in the United States and certainly above the line elsewhere, with the exception of Japan. But I I do think that, uh, you know, Japan has changed the nature of the game to some extent. Uh, Quantitative easing, they continue, but they have this uh, fixed 10-year, as you've mentioned, at uh, 0%. And I, I think when that happened, that sort of put... All of the other bond markets in play. It it, it it basically meant that, you know, the U.S. Treasury and and gilt uh, market and bond market didn't have to track JGBs one for one, but it it uh, you know produced some type of marginal uh, increase or possibility of increase. Um, you know that that allowed uh, inflation to have some type of an effect, and that allowed the Fed to you know, to be able to go ahead in December and to raise rates. So I, I think an analysis of what's going on with this uh, fixed rate policy in one country, which may spread to other countries, I, I think is important. And I think that's what did it uh, in terms of the, the two-day taper tantrum in, in Germany. Um, a, that's, a, that's another story. But, yeah, central banks are starting to sort of move in a, another direction. And I think investors sense it.
1: Is that other direction, Bill Gross, the idea of a stronger dollar, and will it be a brutal move? I mean, we can go any number of ways here. Uh, Jakob Fells was just on talking about a euro that is stable, that won't strengthen. We've got the soiree in Britain in the United Kingdom. But, Bill Gross, do you look for stronger dollar? Is that how you work day-to-day at Janus?
5: Well, that's what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, I would say longer term, and that's that's where I hang out, Tom, as you know. But I, I would say longer term that the, you know, the recent trend in the dollar, DXY, put them all or most of them to, together and look at the trend. Um, you know, it, it's certainly upward, not to to its peak or it's cyclical peak, but it's upward. And I, and I would say that the, the world needs a weaker dollar, not a stronger dollar. Um, you know, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And when you think about it, to the extent that the world's reserve currency strengthens and, uh, and other uh, countries' currencies weakens, then you know that to me is a, a tightening type of effect. And it, it supposedly reflects a tightening in terms of higher yields in the US relative to uh, to the uh, Euroland or to Japan or the UK and to and, uh, some extent that's happened. Um, but I, I think it's a negative trend, it's certainly a negative trend for emerging markets. We're seeing the Mexican peso you know uh, down today again and and that's the leading emerging market currency so it to me it's a tightening that the the fed hasn't really uh, initiated yet they they've only moved up once but i i don't think it augurs well for global economic growth i think the world needs a weaker dollar
2: the story of the moment the payrolls report for the month of september 156,000 jobs were created 5% unemployment we are back now with Bill Gross of Janus Capital here on Bloomberg Radio. And we welcome everybody joining us on Bloomberg Television. Bill, before the break, you suggested that this number is enough to keep the Fed in play. I don't know whether uh, it was because you did your yoga or maybe you didn't watch the 49ers game last <laughs> night, but, but you, seem very, you seem very relaxed about that. Um, you, you don't seem uh, upset at all that uh, we're going to see a, an interest rate rise.
5: Well no, I think we will in in uh, December for sure and maybe even in November i they've promised so much that at at, at some point they've they've got to come out and, and do something or else their credibility is is really uh, going to sink to a low point so i I think the the Fed will raise interest rates you know mike i've I've been uh, thinking that uh, the Fed should raise interest rates for a long time if only to provide for a, a more attractive uh, savings rate in terms of not only short-term yields, but uh, longer-term yields. I think insurance companies and banks and uh, pension funds are rather desperate for income, and the only way to do it really is to extend out in terms of risk, which uh, probably isn't a good idea, or to extend out in duration. But duration provides nothing. So I, I, I think the Fed will move. They're they're limited. They're cautious. They'll move perhaps once every nine to 12 months unless circumstances change significantly but I I think an upward move uh, renormalization is at least appropriate at this time.
1: Uh, Bill Gross you made worldwide headlines a number of years ago by talking about 10 years of financial repression Stephen Major at HSBC really reaffirmed the gross call uh, the other day a 1.35 percent 10-year yield end of 17 and particularly Lower yields for longer out to 2021. Do you assume even if the Fed brings up the short term of the curve, flat curve forever, and the idea of financial repression for our viewers and listeners forever?
5: Well, not uh, forever is long term, and, and you're baiting me with that one, Tom. But yes, for a long time. And I think Rogoff and Reinhardt with their either 10 years or 20 years or the biblical equivalent of seven years of uh, you know, feast and seven years of famine, which would be a financial repression uh, in terms of the latter, um, you know, something that has to be with us. I mean, when you uh, build up leverage uh, and the world built up leverage until 2008, and by the way, where you are, Tom, in Washington, the IMF has come out very strongly, you know, with, not with the suggestion, but with the statistics that uh, emerging markets and, Uh, developed markets in both in the sovereign and the private sector have uh, increased their leverage significantly since then. And so, you know, uh, because of that, because of this highly levered world, which I don't think uh, we've ever experienced in this era of financialization, which uh, could go back as far as 50, 60, 70 years, I don't think the central banks can afford to raise interest rates because a a quarter or a half or 100 basis points might might just break, break the system.
1: Bill, this is critical. You run an unconstrained fund buried in the green book of the IMF is a terse sentence about the damage the great distortion is doing to insurance companies, to pensions, to long-term investable assets. Help us right now. Where is Bill Gross's actuarial assumption on a blended 60-40 portfolio? Are you below a 4% actuarial assumption?
5: Well, you know that's hard. Um, You know, I've been around four, uh, four to five, and I would assume equities at uh, six to seven and bonds at uh, two to three, and you mix them in some proportion. Let's just say 50-50, and and that's where you get. But most pension funds, as you know, are at seven or seven plus, and uh, insurance companies, you can't measure it that way, but their liabilities are... You know, significant relative to what they've promised, and and ultimately, Tom, uh, you know, mom and pop on Main Street. Uh, you know, we we talk about companies and uh, the, you know the foundational support of capitalism, but actually, you know, mom and pop as savers are the the support of capitalism going forward, and unless they can get something on their savings, they either save more, which uh, sends the system into a mild reverse. Or they, um, you know, they take their money out of the bank, and, and uh, not literally, but figuratively, stuff it in a mattress. And, and that itself breaks down uh, financialization. And so, yeah, we're at a point where the system needs higher interest rates, but central bankers you know, are modeled on lower interest rates. And it'll be an interesting challenge going forward, not just with monetary policy, but, of course, with fiscal policy and who's elected.
2: Well, uh, building on that, in your most recent market commentary, you suggest that it is, in your words, capitalism that's threatened by the ongoing strategies of the central banks because we're seeing inefficient allocation of capital relative to risk.
5: Well, that's true. You know, the, uh, lower interest rates do keep, uh, commonsensically, zombie corporations alive. You know that happened in Japan and has happened for twenty years. So that's a, a decent example. And, and let's just put some common sense into, you know, some uh, central bankers' model to the, to the extent that um, risk is not uh, proportionate to return, or put it the other way, return is not proportionate to risk. Then then investors uh, and businesses don't invest. Uh, you know, it's, it's the margin, it's the nim for banks, and it's the spread, as Tom asked, in, in terms of uh, you know, longer-term liabilities. And so it, it sort of freezes the system. Dalio talked about it uh, this week, and he's talked about it for a long time, about pushing on a string, that's the old metaphor but basically that's the point where we're at where investors and savers you know basically look at their options and uh, and decide that uh, that they're not so attractive and and capitalism last point capitalism depends upon it depends upon the assumption of risk as opposed to, uh, to, to to no risk and if if investors and savers and businesses are not willing to risk at a spread at an attractive spread then Capitalism itself starts to, at the margin, starts to turn inward.
2: You mentioned the elections. We'd be remiss in ask, uh, not asking you uh, whether or not uh, the election is actually going to be a major investable event before or after November 8th.
5: Yeah, I think so, but I, I don't, uh, obviously, I don't know who's going to win. I think there'll be a one, two, three day type of reaction. But to be fair, I... I I think that all countries, and of course you're talking about the United States, but there are elections elsewhere as well, and there are referendums in Italy and so on. Um, You know, everyone begins to speak now to infrastructure, and that's the easy word, that's the code word, that's something that... uh, you know, both parties can get behind, but it, it, it's more than infrastructure. There, it, it, w- what has to happen is a program to take care of individuals, displaced individuals in the workforce. And we see that, obviously, in many of the numbers today. And to the extent that you can't take care of either through increased Social Security or some type of benefits, then the consumer, which is the ultimate uh, driving force behind capitalism that consumer, you know, can't simply get started.
1: Bill, help us here with the idea of where we will be in our politics. I know, you know, we'd love for you to predict the election, but we're not gonna pin that on you uh, right now. These are two candidates against trade. They wanna wall up the borders in this way or that way. There's almost an isolationist tone to the entire election. Help us with that. We can't do business and finance with an isolationist tone, can we?
5: No, I agree with you. I agree. uh, Free trade, um, free trade is beneficial, has been beneficial ever since Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand came out with the theory. Uh, You know, most... Most economists, most investors know commonsensically that that's, that's the case. And, and, and so uh, free trade is a good thing the problem tom is is that society and governments haven't recognized the repercussions of free trade because free trade displaces workers you know it it, uh, produces imbalances between countries in terms of uh, a growing workforce or or a stable or shrinking labor force as in uh, japan and so you know governments have to address the hard work in terms of what do they do with displaced workers trade is wonderful for economies and trade is wonderful for profits and trade is wonderful for rising yeah. wages, but um, uh, lots of people are not working.
2: Bill Gross, Janice Capital, thank you very much for joining us. As always on Jobs Day in the United States, 156,000 jobs a 5% unemployment rate. This is Bloomberg.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.